Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, coming to you from the Mary Bakerty Library in Boston and online at mbelibrary.org. I'm Jonathan Eder, host of this podcast, in which we explore the ways in which the legacy and work of Mary Baker Eddy are inspiring research and thought in a variety of academic and professional disciplines. In this episode, we delve into the experience and significance of Mary Baker Eddy and Christian science with the emergence of mass media in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Our guest is Dr. Ashley Squires, whose book, Healing the Nation, Literature, Progress, and Christian Science, includes chapters on Mark Twain and literary journalism. Squires takes us through not only important issues in Eddie's career, but in the history of American culture in the progressive era. So I'm very happy to present my interview with Dr. Squires on Mark Twain, Mary Baker Eddy, and the news. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm very happy to be talking to you today. Yeah, well, we're so pleased to reconnect with you here at the Mary Baker Eddy Library. You were a fellow here, a research fellow in 2011 and 2013. You're now Assistant Professor of Humanities at the New Economic School in Moscow, Russian Federation. And congratulations on the publication of your book, Healing the Nation, Literature, Progress, and Christian Science, published by Indiana University Press in 2017. Oh, well, thank you very much. (laughs) And a great deal of material at the library was very helpful to the completion of this project. Well, that's terrific. Your book delves into the literary media and religious worlds of late 19th and early 20th century America, and it explores the place and impact of Mary Baker Eddy and Christian science in those spheres. A figure that you spend some time on in your book is Mark Twain, who, if I understand your book correctly, was a bit of a skeptic of this whole idea of progress. So I'm just curious about Twain, how how you understand him, Mm -hmm. and then how you understand him in relation to Mary Baker Eddy. Mary Baker Eddy was somebody that he thought about and wrote about. And one of the things that I found interesting that you wrote in your book was that of all the interventions of major canonical writers into the debates around Christian science, Mark Twain's critique is still the best known and most frequently studied, but it is not particularly well understood. So I'd also love to to understand why it's not well understood and how we can understand it better. So like you said, Twain is is very skeptical about the the idea of progress. Um, He is not sure that humanity ever becomes better. Mm -hmm. He sees humanity as sort of trapped in a cycle of repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. Twain sees a scientific and technological progress as being involved in, as being complicit in the ongoing injustices and sufferings of humanity. So he frequently, for example, points to the cotton gin an invention that began to make slavery in the South more profitable precisely at a time when it seemed like it might die a, you know, a natural death. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's not convinced that humanity is ever getting better or is ever going to get better. And so Christian science has this very optimistic narrative that I think that he is inherently a little bit skeptical of. An alternative title for this book was actually um, Not Healing the Nation, 
One of the titles I put forward was But Now I See, you know, which of course comes from the hymn Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see, which encompasses the kinds of physiological metaphors that we often use to describe spiritual awakening. Mm -hmm. But this is also a metaphor that describes the way we understand knowledge in general as, you know, once we have more information, once we know more, once we understand the universe better, once we're able to see that this somehow drives things forward. And Twain does not believe in that. <laughs> he's, he's not sure that becoming more informed, that becoming smarter, that having better technology ever makes us that much better. Mm-hmm. But what I do think is sort of poorly understood about Twain and Christian science coming from the literature perspective is the fact that he really kind of saw Christian science and Mary Baker Eddy in, in very different ways. Christian science was very closely interwoven into his life. Mm -hmm. His wife was interested in Christian science. His daughters were also interested in Christian science. In fact, his daughter Clara um, went on to write a book about her exploration of Christian science. And Sam Clemens himself also uh, experimented with Christian science. And the Clemens family, you know, like many of their contemporaries, were always trying new things in the health realm. Twain himself was convinced that basically all different kinds of healing philosophies have some validity to them, and that some are better at, uh, at healing certain kinds of ailments than others. So he never really rejected the claim that Christian science could heal. And this, in fact, drove many of his contemporaries crazy. Mm-hmm. But Twain would never let go of that. He really believed that Christian science could heal in many situations. What he didn't care for was Mary Baker Eddy herself. Mm-hmm. And I think that the animus was personal in some ways. I think he just didn't like her and her public persona. Some of it is undoubtedly sexist, but... Twain, along with people like Upton Sinclair, and I do also think the writers for the McClure series, the biographical series that I talk about in my book and I've, I've written a big article on, were concerned about the mixture of religion and business, of religion and money. Mm-hmm. And so they looked at an organization like Christian Science and, and saw how Mary Baker Eddy had become a very wealthy woman. They were uncomfortable with that. They thought something must be wrong there. Now, there's nothing unusual about that in America. Religion and business are often sort of mixed in the United States. Um, And they saw this as a problem. The progressive movement is also defined by economic progressivism, of suspicion towards monopoly and towards business. And in fact, Mark Twain would often use business analogies when talking about Mary Baker Eddy. He says that she had a standard oil interest (laughs) um, in in this healing method, sort of comparing her to a Rockefeller, which in some ways is almost kind of a flattering comparison, right? Right, (laughs) But he didn't intend it that way. He believed that what truth there was in Christian science was something that was out there in the world for humanity to discover and that it should remain something that is free and available to every individual and isn't something that ought to be sold as a service. In comparing Mary Baker Eddy to Standard Oil, he's essentially saying that an oil company takes raw material out of the ground and then processes it and turns it into something that can be sold on a market. 
And he saw somebody like Mary Baker Eddy is doing something very similar with the healing principle or with a spiritual principle. Mm-hmm. And this was a problem for him. Um, so that's that's one of the things that's poorly understood is the degree to which Mark Twain, unlike some of his contemporaries, actually didn't object to the healing claims. Um, his problem was with the way uh, Mary Baker Eddy essentially ran ran her church. Thank you for providing some clarity about that complicated relationship that he has with uh, with the subject of Christian science, mm-hmm. which seems to just be reflective of a very complicated vision he has of humanity overall. Yes. But you did mention before the McClure's biography on Mary Baker Eddy. And just for the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with that, I, I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit. And also something else that jumped out at me from your book, where you state, quote, one need only look to the frustratingly enduring usage of the 1907 McClure's biography as an authoritative source for evidence of scholarly ignorance. And, and you brought that out mm-hmm. um, in, in the context of how Christian science in general in the scholarly community and, and in the public often is, is misunderstood. So, yeah, it would yeah. just be fascinating to see how that book on, on Mary Baker Eddy has perhaps contributed to that um, misunderstanding and ignorance. Yeah, I'll explain how this text comes to be. This era in American letters and this era in journalism is defined in some ways by muckraking journalism, so early investigative journalism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at McClure's magazine in the late 19th and the very early 20th century, you have all of these star journalists working at this magazine. You have Ida Tarbell, you have Lincoln Steffens, you have Burton Hendrick. Ida Tarbell had just completed the history of Standard Oil, which was a blockbuster series that revealed all kinds of things about this gigantic company and did so by telling the story of its founder, by telling the story of of Rockefeller himself. There was a young journalist in um, New Hampshire at the time named Georgine Milmeen, and she saw what Tarbell had done and was inspired to write her own investigative series. And she decided that the figure she wanted to investigate was Mary Baker Eddy. And she wanted to do something very similar. She wanted to investigate the history of the Christian Science Church and in doing so, tell the story of Mary Baker Eddy at the same time. So it's the same kind of project. She is interviewing and taking affidavits from people who knew this octogenarian woman um, when she was a child. (laughs) Uh, So you have a, a great separation in time going on there. And she brings this story to McClure's magazine. Mm-hmm. The Eddie series got delayed a little bit. It was placed in the hands of various other editors, including Burton Hendrick. It was the task of these editors to try to take Milmeen's drafts and notes and turn it into something that fit the literary style of the magazine. One of the editors who came to work on this after the first couple of installments were published is Willa Cather, who you know would later become a very famous regionalist novelist. And Willa Cather's involvement in this series, she edited basically all of the installments after the first two, which Hendrick edited. At some point in the 1930s, a rumor began circulating that Willa Cather, who at this point had become very famous, had not only edited the series, but had actually written it herself. Mm. And that she ought to be considered the principal author of the text. 
And this is a thing that kind of remained under the surface. And people would um, ask Willa Cather, are you the true author of the Mary Baker Eddy series? And she would say, no, no, no. Later on in the 1970s, a new letter of Willa Cather's emerged to a friend of hers in which she says essentially, yeah, I had a lot more to do with the Mary Baker Eddy series um, than was originally known. This letter was then used as the basis for making stronger claims about Willa Cather's authorship. Then in the early 1980s, um, a couple of Cather scholars went and looked at the early drafts that existed in the Christian Science Church's collection at the time. This was before the Mary Baker Eddy Library. And they believed that they saw what was Willa Cather's uh, handwriting on early drafts of this series. On this basis, they made you know, the claim that Willa Cather is the principal author. And so the University of Nebraska published an edition of this biography and placed Willa Cather's name first. Georgine Milmean was the credited author in McClure's. And at this point, you know, Willa Cather is given essentially top billing with her. When people found out that she has a connection to this text and that perhaps maybe even she is the principal author of this text, you know, there's this immediate curiosity about, can we go to this and maybe see her early development as a writer? So much of the context in which it's discussed in literary fields is as an early work of Cather's. So it keeps this thing kind of in circulation. It it continues to be talked about. I had simply taken this claim for granted, the idea that Cather had actually authored this series. Um, And so I came to the Mary Baker Eddy Library to look at the drafts and the notes, believing, essentially, that I was going to discover what role Cather had played in shaping the narrative. And what I found was disappointing if that was my goal, but also, I think, arguably more interesting (laughs) Mm -hmm. if you kind of want to get to the bottom of what's going on. And essentially, I was not able to corroborate the claims made by the editors of the Nebraska edition. The drafts that exist in the collection that they are referring to are clearly much earlier drafts. I believe that they were produced by Milmean herself. There was a claim that these were actually proofs of the printed articles. That, That can't possibly be true. I think that these drafts were produced at a much earlier date. So what's in the collection does not necessarily tell us all of that much about what Cather did on it. It doesn't provide enough evidence to support this idea that Willa Cather is the principal author. The McClure's biography is often treated as if it is an authoritative scholarly source when I don't Mm -hmm. think it should be. You know, for one thing, it's a very early biography. It's a work of journalism. It has not benefited from the century of hindsight that we now have. There have been many subsequent biographies of Mary Baker Eddy of much higher quality. When you're talking about the people who found religious organizations, you know, the pressure is even greater than it is for, say, a Rockefeller. For a female religious founder, we don't have a category for that. You know, anytime you have a person who founds an institution that goes on to have such an, an enormous life beyond her. It's certainly, I think, more elevating and um, in some ways more gratifying to think in terms of cultural impact and how the ideas have, have had a life beyond the person. Your book is, is very interested in the emergence of modernity in, in culture mm-hmm. and the role that media plays in modernity. So I'm just interested in in you talking a little bit more about that, 
and then how that relates to Mary Baker Eddy's decision to found a newspaper, the Christian Science Monitor. Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, I, I am really interested in this. I think it's a, a very a fascinating story. So Christian science becomes a major concern in kind of the first era of mass media as we now understand it. Mm-hmm. It becomes an object of media scrutiny and media t- attention in ways that were deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. So you had this McClure series on Mary Baker Eddy, who at the time was more or less retired and I don't think expected to have, you know, all of the details of her life, all of the the people she knew when she was a child to have their accounts of her published in such a prominent way. Mm-hmm. You know, this was a new experience for people, you know, a, a new experience for public figures to be treated in this way. It's not comfortable today. And so I'm sure it was uh, maybe even less so then. Also, In addition to um, investigative outlets like McClure's, you also, of course, had yellow journalism. So institutions like the New York World writing stories that are in many ways very sensational, that are trying to tell a, a, a good, juicy, compelling story, trying to sell newspapers that way, in many ways actually actively going out and creating stories. Mm-hmm. And at this point in the early 20th century, many people were becoming pretty tired of this. And journalism as a field begins turning away from what Michael Shudson, a journalism scholar, calls story journalism towards information journalism. Mm -hmm. So if yellow journalism of the New York world sort of defines late 19th century journalism, what's coming to be in the early 20th century is this information model that's embodied by institutions like the New York Times. This is journalism that is not aiming to tell a great story. It's aiming to present purely the facts and Mm -hmm. only the facts. So the motto of the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, this tells you something about their values. News that is fit, meaning news that is suitable, news that can be respected. Uh, They also had another motto, which said that the New York Times presented news that would not soil the breakfast cloth. So, Mm -hmm. So that, you know, wouldn't leave a stain. It's not messy. It's not dirty. It doesn't get involved in scandal and crime. So we're at this moment when standards of journalism are shifting. And also, Christian Science and Mary Baker Eddy herself have, you know, arguably kind of become victims Mm -hmm. of this previous model of journalism. And what's fascinating about this story is that if you think about a church establishing a news outlet, establishing a newspaper, Mm-hmm. You know, then it's very easy to imagine it, you know, purely becoming sort of a mouthpiece for that particular theology or for that particular worldview, or even becoming sort of a propaganda organ, mm-hmm. you know, that would be easily recognizable as such. But this isn't really what happened. Instead, in a lot of the archives that show us the early history of the newspaper, What you have is these people who are founding the Monitor in conversation with one another about essentially how to contribute to the elevation of the journalistic profession. Mm -hmm. So Christian science found itself in this moment when the information model of journalism is becoming more the most prestigious thing. And so they essentially, in my opinion, attempt to emulate that. There's an early draft of a masthead, so not one that saw print, but that has editorial markings penciled in on it. And um, it has a motto on it that says, all the news worth reading. Mm -hmm. And so this, of course, sounds very much like the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print. Again, it suggests that we are an institution that exercises judgment, that we have discernment, that we have taste. 
And in the early reviews of the Monitor, this is what you see. You see lots of other newspapers praising it for not using garish typefaces and not advertising patent medicines, which, of course, Christian scientists would never do, and for not reporting too much on crime, definitely not on scandal. Mm -hmm. And so it was reporting news from, again, that more elevated point of view, that more informational point of view, and, and fit right in so that several decades later, the Christian Science Monitor essentially kind of becomes synonymous with mainstream journalism. It's a, a very a fascinating story. Ashley, I'd just love to thank you so much for, for your book and all the insight that you've brought to this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for a conversation with Dr. Ashley Squires about Mark Twain, Mary Baker Eddy, and the news. Part of our discussion looked at issues around early biographical treatments of Mary Baker Eddy. If you'd like to learn more about the history of biographies on Mary Baker Eddy from her day until the present, we invite you to look at a timeline on the library's website that includes summaries of a selection of these works. You can access this by clicking on the link on this webpage or through the Info tab on your podcast app. Please join us for our next episode for a roundtable conversation on the field of oral history with Dr. Stephen Sloan, director of the Baylor University Institute for Oral History. Also participating in the conversation will be Judy Hunnicke and Stephen Graham. They will be discussing the Mary Baker Eddy Library Oral Histories Project. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast is produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2018.